All right, hopefully that's on. Uh, good evening, everybody. Um, go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 7. That's where we're going to be spending our time this evening. We're going to be looking at uh, Stephen's sermon, his address in Acts 7. If you're anything like me, this is maybe a passage that you've glossed over in the past in your study of Acts. Uh, I find Acts to be very much about a lot of the action, and Stephen's sermon feels a little bit like uh, a break or a slowdown in that. And so for me, I find that I t I've tended to kind of glaze over it and not pay too much attention to what Stephen is saying. But what I'd like for us to do this evening is kind of walk through uh, his sermon and the points that he's making and consider maybe some of the applications to our own lives. Before we get into the actual text of his sermon, it's really important for us to understand uh, kind of the context. So if you remember in chapter 6, Stephen is out preaching, and he encounter, encounters some Jews who don't like what he has to say, and they start to argue with him. And this is a really bad idea for them because he is speaking with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so, of course, they are immediately kind of outmatched in this discussion. And so then instead of continuing to argue with him, they basically recruit some false witnesses to bring accusations against Stephen uh, before the Sanhedrin council. And I want to look specifically at what it is that they say about him. So if you look in, in Acts chapter 6, uh, starting in verse 11... Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So there's a couple things that they accuse him of. They phrase it a few different ways. First, they say that he's speaking against Moses and God. Notice their order there. And then when he's brought before the council, they accuse him of speaking against this holy place, meaning the temple and the law. And it's really important that we get that context, because as we're reading through Stephen's sermon Everything that he's really saying relates back to these accusations that have been brought against him. And he's not really trying to defend himself directly against those accusations, but rather he's trying to demonstrate that those accusations are actually coming from a mindset about their relationship with God that is flawed. So let's get started. Uh, we'll start reading chapter 7 in verse 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, 
and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. So one of the things you'll notice as we go through Stephen's sermon is that 95% of what he's going to have to say is not an original thought. What I mean by that is he's basically just going to walk us through kind of a summary, a retelling of Old Testament events. And this is one of the reasons why I have not paid as close attention to this sermon in the past as maybe I should have. It's because it kind of feels like a review session. Like, I already know this. Like, why are we recapping this? And you can imagine that his audience maybe felt the same way. But if we think about what he's been accused of, uh, speaking against the law and the temple, well, those things are connected for them to God's presence and God's covenant with them. And so by starting with Abraham, he's going back to a time that predates the law and predates the temple. And in Abraham, we see an example of somebody that God is present with before the temple, and God has a covenant with Abraham before the law that is going to be fulfilled after Abraham's lifetime. And so he's starting to demonstrate this type of relationship and connection with God that predates the law in the temple. Let's read a little bit further. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him, and rescued him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. So here we get to now Joseph, still before the law, still before the temple. And here, Stephen begins to layer in this idea of a deliverer, of God raising up a deliverer for his people. And in this case, we see that deliverer is Joseph. If you've read through Genesis and read Joseph's story, it's really obvious that Joseph is a a foreshadowing, a, a model of the deliverance that was going to come from Christ. But in Joseph, we also see the example of somebody who isn't in a situation that is connected to the law or the temple. In fact, Joseph is quite literally cast out from the other children of Israel, finds himself in a foreign land. But we also see that God is present with Joseph and that God delivers him even though he is disconnected from the children of Israel. He doesn't have a law. He doesn't have the temple. But he does have a relationship with God, and God is faithful toward Joseph. All right, let's keep reading a little bit further, picking up again in verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. 
At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness, Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your, of, of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. So now we finally get to Moses. And if you recall, that's one of the things that Stephen was allegedly blaspheming against. He's blaspheming against Moses. So you can imagine if you were listening, maybe your ears would start to perk up now. Like, okay, we've been kind of doing some recap of stuff that we already know. Now is here's where he's going to say some crazy stuff about Moses. And Stephen continues to kind of just give a very factual retelling of Old Testament events. And once again in Moses, we see an example of a deliverer who is a foreshadowing of Christ and somebody that God is present with before the temple and before the law. If you notice, Moses, when he encounters God, it's not in a temple, it's not when he's in the midst of the Israelites. He is raised up uh, as an Egyptian. He's trained in the Egyptian culture and when he encounters God, it's in a burning bush in wilderness. It's very different from what they would have associated uh, God's presence to be like in the connection with the temple. Let's read a little bit further, because here's where uh, Moses' connection really is brought out. Let's continue in verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know 
what has become of him. So we see Moses is selected to be the redeemer and the ruler, the person that's going to lead God's people out of this very dire situation, this slavery that they find themselves in. But in spite of that, what we also see is a parallel between Moses and Jesus because Moses is also rejected by the people that he's supposed to be leading. They don't listen to him. And that is in spite of the fact that he is validated time and time again that he is the person that God has picked to be their leader. He's demonstrating through signs and miracles that he is that man. And that's something that Stephen's audience would have wholeheartedly agreed with. That was part of why they looked up to Moses so much. What Stephen demonstrates here is that their ancestors had committed the same sin that he was being accused of. They had blasphemed Moses. They had blasphemed the law. They had refused to listen to the law and to God. But what really is most important is what Stephen says in verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. The implication here is that if you really are going to be concerned about blaspheming against Moses and the law, if you really are going to accept what Moses said, then you also have to accept what Moses said about Christ. You also have to accept Moses' prophecy that Christ was going to come. All right, let's read a little bit further. Starting in verse 41. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So Stephen has addressed the idea a little bit of blasphemy against Moses and the law. And now he's going to turn to the idea of blasphemy against the temple. And this is an interesting idea because I think it's one that's maybe like not super intuitive to us. We typically don't uh, perceive God as being connected to uh, a physical place and his presence being connected to a, a physical place. But that's very much kind of what the temple symbolized, right? And what Stephen is kind of illustrating here is that there is a difference between those things having value and coming from God and those things being set up as substitutes for God's genuine presence in your life. 
and in his audience's life, they had really exchanged an actual presence of God in their life for these things as their substitute. They were using them as a proxy. And you know that this is what they were doing because they actually experienced God's presence in their life. They interacted with Jesus, who is the Son of God in human form, and when they encountered him, their reaction was, we need to kill him. We need to get rid of him. So you can tell from their reaction to God's actual presence in their life that these things were just substitutes. It's kind of hard for us to get uh, the, the sense of what that's like to think of something as a, a substitute for God's presence in our life in the way that they felt about the temple, because we don't really connect God's presence to a physical place. But I think maybe we can fall into the trap of connecting God's presence in our life to other kinds of substitutes. Maybe that's things that we believe or things that we do or things that we're careful not to do. And I'm not asserting that we should believe wrong things or that we should not do what is right and that we should instead do what is sinful. But what I am saying is that what we do and what we believe needs to be the result of God's presence in our lives, not the substitute for it. And what Stephen illustrates here, he goes back to their ancestors again. And he points out their ancestors had the actual Moses with them. They had the original tabernacle. They had access to the original forms of these things that they exalt so highly. But it didn't benefit them at all because their hearts were turned to Egypt. It didn't benefit them at all to have access to Moses, to have access to the tabernacle, because their hearts were not oriented toward God. And he quotes from two Old Testament passages uh, from Amos chapter 5 and Isaiah 66. And both of these passages are about vain worship. They're about worshipers who are offering lip service, but whose hearts are not in the right place. And that's really kind of the key points that Stephen is trying to get through to his audience. That God's presence is not chained to the temple. It's not confined to uh, the bounds of the promised land. But rather, that God's presence is dependent upon how their hearts are oriented. It's dependent upon their relationship with him. And that if they really wanted to accept the temple and the law for what they were meant to do, that they would have to also accept that Moses and the law and the temple, all of those things were intended to affirm Christ as the Messiah and were intended to prepare them for what Christ was going to bring forward. And then Stephen closes his sermon with this, starting in verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. I think the most important thing that Stephen says is, as your fathers did, so do you. Here's why that's important. I want you to think of your favorite movie. I'm willing to bet there's probably a character in that movie that's your favorite character, and that you like that character 
because you either relate to them or admire them. Either you resonate with their personality and the things that happen to them in that story, or you admire their characteristics and you want to be like them in some capacity. Maybe it's a mix of both. I'm willing to bet that that's probably how many of Stephen's, Stephen's audience felt about some of the people he's mentioned in this retelling of Old Testament events. They probably really admired and resonated with Joseph and Abraham and Moses. And, and we probably do too. I know that I admire them and their faith. But there's another figure in this story that shows up a lot that has a huge impact on the events that happen. And it's their fathers. Stephen uses that phrase, our fathers, your fathers, uh, several times throughout this. And it's not a singular person. It's a catch-all for their ancestors, the Israelites. But they come up so much that I think they almost become personified as another figure in this story. And what role do they play? Well, they sell Joseph into slavery. They rebel against Moses. They start worshiping idols, and they kill the prophets. So when Stephen says, as your fathers did, so do you, they're saying, he's saying, the character that you are most like in this story is not Moses, it's not Abraham, it's not Joseph. You're most like your fathers. And their fathers in this narrative are the bad guys. They are the villains. And that's a hard pill to swallow if your identity is um, extremely built upon your heritage and your legacy and the family that you come from. And that's why this was so challenging uh, for these Jews to accept. I want to pause here and think about some applications of that in our own lives, because we all have ancestors too. And you might have ancestors that you are really proud of. You might have ancestors who have been Christians for generations. Or you might have ancestors, and you might say, I'm the first person, I'm the only person in my family who's a Christian, and kind of my heritage is people who have been sinful and wicked and made huge mistakes. I think what Stephen is driving at is that we shouldn't and we can't allow our heritage to define our relationship with God. Because wherever you fall on that spectrum, the reality is that all of our family trees are riddled with people who have rebelled against God. None of us has a single ancestor who didn't sin against God. And if, if you have ancestors who became Christians and turned away from that, praise God. But the reality is that we are all descended from people who lived lives of sin and wickedness and needed redemption. And I think what Stephen is trying to illustrate is if that we put our stock in our heritage and allow that to define our relationship with God, it's going to end badly. And I think as we're going to see, we're going to look a little bit more at what happens to Stephen and then look at how one specific person kind of bears out that principle. Let's look, uh, pick up again in verse 54. And when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So this is where we first meet Saul in Acts. And Luke, I think, intentionally paints him as the villain in the story, knowing that Saul becomes Paul the apostle and makes a complete 180. And to me, this almost feels like the moment where Saul kind of turns to the dark side. It feels like up to this point, he's maybe on the fence, like he's holding the coats. He's not actively participating in Stephen's uh, murder. But after this, he becomes a zealous persecutor of the church. And it almost feels like Stephen's sermon is kind of what galvanizes him into to working against the church. I'm speculating there. But what I think is interesting is that Saul is also the only person that we know of who heard Stephen's sermon and actually made a change later on. He's the only person that we know of who eventually came to Christ that was in this audience. And so I want to ask the question, why is that? What set him apart from the other people who are hearing this sermon? And there's one passage I think we can maybe look at to answer that uh, in Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians 3, we've unpacked this a lot earlier this year in one of our Bible classes, um, but I just kind of want to look at one idea here. Let's start reading um, in verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So here Paul is describing who he was when he was Saul, who he was at the time of the events in Acts chapter 7. And my favorite thing that he says here is that he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? He's kind of like saying, like he was the guy, right? He was lined up to be very successful in that culture. He's the kind of guy that other Hebrews would have wanted to be like. And he's also exactly the kind of guy that would have hated what Stephen had to say. So why does Saul eventually become Paul? Why does he change? Let's keep reading in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from, from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible 
I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The thing that creates a switch in Paul is understanding the value of knowing Christ. Let's consider the people in Stephen's sermon. Why is God present with Abraham? Why does he make a covenant with Abraham before the law and before the temple? Because Abraham knew God. Why is God present with Joseph and delivers Joseph even when he's in a foreign land away from the other children of Israel? Because Joseph knew God. Why is Moses the one who's going to be the leader of the Israelites, even though they're going to reject him? Because Moses knew God. Why does it not benefit the Israelites to have Moses, to have the tabernacle? Because they didn't know God. That is the thing that differentiates Moses and Abraham and Joseph and the people that you want to be like in Stephen's sermon from the Israelites who turned to idolatry and started uh, rebelling against God. Moses and Abraham and Joseph knew God. The Israelites didn't. So they just had a law and a temple that were empty because there were no hearts turned toward God to truly fill it. They became meaningless things because they were fueled by the wrong motivations. Why is Paul the person who hears Stephen's sermon and later makes a change? And I, I don't know to what degree Stephen's sermon impacted Paul directly. We're not told that. But I have to at least wonder that it may have had some influence on him. Why is Paul the one who later makes a change and as far as we know, nobody else who was party to Stephen's murder did. Because Paul eventually came to understand the worth of knowing God. Stephen calls his audience stiff-necked people. It paints the picture of somebody who, when they're exposed to the word of God, is not willing to change. They're not willing to let it affect their heart. Contrast that with the lifestyle that Paul presents He's willing to give up everything. He's willing to change his entire identity and let go of everything that had previously had value to him for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. That's the thing that differentiates those who know God and those who don't. It's not about what your heritage is. It's not even about your own personal heritage and your own personal past. Moses had bad things in his past. Joseph had bad things in his past. Abraham had bad things in his past. And we know Paul had bad things in his past. But the thing that set them apart was that they pursued a relationship with God, not substitutes for that relationship. So that's what I would like to leave you with this evening. Consider in your life, is there anything that you're allowing to be a stand-in for your relationship with God? Is there anything that you're letting be a substitute for God's presence in your life? And if there is, I would encourage you to consider that as worthless, consider that as rubbish, and pursue the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. If you don't know Christ, we would love to help you with that. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to study with you. But we want to be of service to you spiritually in any way that we can. And if there's anybody who has any spiritual needs that we can help with this evening, we'd invite you to, to talk to somebody or to make those known publicly. We'd invite you to come to the front and make those known as we stand and sing.